0: Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. Last episode, I did a little introduction to music in Renaissance England, and this week I want to do something on visual arts. Don't worry, we'll get back to the timeline and the ascent of Queen Elizabeth here in a little bit, I promise. Well, actually, first we'll spend some time on the juicy details of her personal life before she became queen, which really could be a story straight out of TMZ. How's that for a teaser? But while we have this little break between monarchs, I want to focus on some of the cultural aspects of 16th century England. Also, I will be putting up some of the images by the artists on the blog over the next few days, So feel free to check it out at http colon slash slash www.englandcast.com. So, most of us know that the Renaissance was a time of flowering of the arts world, starting in Italy, where Giotto was painting frescoes, and as I learned in high school, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were prolific. I guess that dates me a little bit, huh? But what about Northern Europe and England specifically? Did the powers of Donatello and Leonardo extend across the English Channel? The Renaissance was later in coming to England, migrating north from warmer climates. So what flowering of art there was took off later in the 16th century, under the reign of Elizabeth. Also, the Reformation and all of the political upheaval that went along with that made it difficult for artists to work in the traditional places like monasteries and cathedrals. So, during the age of the Tudors, art didn't follow the same trajectory as it did in, in-, in Italy, where there were very few radicals around protesting the Pope. Henry VIII was well known for supporting the arts, especially early in his reign, and there was a sort of artist colony around the court, which was enhanced by the fact that many of the artists knew each other. Lucas Horenbaut was an early Flemish artist who moved to England in the 1520s to become the king's painter, and was one of the founders of the practice of painting miniatures, which would become all the rage later when Elizabeth was queen. Lucas, for example, brought his sister Susanna with him, and he also wound up working with Hans Holbein when he arrived. Hans Holbein the Younger is one of the most famous painters that we associate with Henry VIII, but he was actually foreign, coming from Germany. He was living in Basel and was influenced by the artistic trends in Italy, as well as the fact that, as he was born in the late fourteen nineties, he was old enough to understand and be influenced by the reformation that started in Germany in fifteen seventeen. He began working for the humanists, doing some portraits, and wound up meeting Erasmus, who gave him a recommendation when Holbein wanted to go to England. That led him to Thomas More who we spoke about in our Tales of the Three Thomases in earlier episodes. Holbein quickly gained popularity in England for doing portraits, and although he did go back and forth to Germany and bought a house in Basel, he would return to England and paint most of the famous portraits of Henry and his family that we think of today, and that was in his post as the official king's painter in the 1530s and 40s. But I remember Holbein for another portrait, the Ambassadors, that he completed in 1533, of the French ambassador and a French bishop. The work includes a lot of imagery and symbols, but the big thing is there's a distorted skull at the bottom, which, when you look at it standing from the bottom right-hand corner, it actually seems to become three-dimensional. It's really, really trippy. And if you're in London, this painting hangs in the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square. And I also have a postcard of it by my desk, but that's probably not particularly helpful to you. Anyway, Holbein died in 1543, possibly of the plague, but nobody knows for sure. Holbein did make a history changing misstep when, in 1539, he was sent to Germany to paint Anne of Cleves, whom Henry was considering making his fourth wife. So Henry told him to be objective, not to flatter Anne in his painting. But according to Henry, Holbein did the 16th century equivalent of posting a way too flattering picture on Match.com. Henry sees the picture, loves the portrait, can't wait for his first blind date when Anne would come to England and marry him. And then Anne arrives at the proverbial bar where they're supposed to meet up And Henry barely even recognizes her. And he's saying, like, hang on, you don't look anything like your picture. What was that, like 10 years and 20 pounds ago? Duh. Then he has this royal hissy fit, complaining that everybody misled him. And poor Anne is just sitting in the bar alone, nursing her Jack and Coke, and wondering how she can make it out of this mess alive. If you're curious how she did make it out alive, or if she did, you should go back to my episodes on Henry's wives to find out what happened with that. So another painter who followed in Holbein's footsteps and may have trained with him is John Betts. Very little is known about him, except that he worked on miniature portraits for the royal family, and his famous portrait of man in a black cap is very much in Holbein's style, and that suggested that the two artists may have worked together. So then we jump past the tumultuous years of Mary and Edward's reign. And we see the arts flourish, particularly miniature portraits. Miniature portraits had long been given as intimate gifts between the wealthy who could afford them and If you think about it, there weren't any you know ubiquitous cell phone cameras in the sixteenth century, so miniatures were an obvious kind of popular present to give to your husband or your wife or your mistress. And Queen Elizabeth actually had her own collection of miniatures kept locked in a cabinet in her bedroom, wrapped in paper and labeled, with one of them labeled, My Lord's Picture, and that contained a portrait of the Earl of Leicester. And here, I'm cleverly using foreshadowing to allude to the upcoming TMZ-worthy episode of Elizabeth's personal life. Go me. Anyway, there's another artist, George Gower. He painted some full-size epic portraits of Elizabeth, including a famous one with scenes from the defeat of the Spanish Armada behind her. He was Elizabeth's sergeant painter in 1581. He was responsible for much of the interior decorations at Hampton Court. And interestingly, he was also responsible for inspecting other artists' paintings of the Queen before they were released. And his paintings, George Gower's paintings, show Elizabeth in every over-the-top stereotype that she's ever been famous for. Crazy clothes that nearly drown her and pale white skin for a start. The granddaddy of miniature portraits for nearly 45 years during Elizabeth's reign was Nicholas Hilliard, who's been called the Shakespeare of Elizabethan painting. Little is known of his early life, but he did spend time in Geneva during the reign of Mary because he was raised with Protestants and during the reign of Mary Protestants weren't particularly welcome in, in England. So he went to Geneva with his family and, um, he picked up French and he trained as a jeweler and he apprenticed himself to a goldsmith. He worked in France and England well into the reign of the Stuarts, but he always seemed to have money trouble. And in fact, at one point he spent time in jail because he didn't have debts or he didn't have money to pay the debts that he had. And when his father-in-law died, he didn't trust his son-in-law Hilliard to take care of the daughter, Hilliard's wife. So he had his will administered by the union, the trade union kind of association of goldsmiths, um, because he didn't think that her husband would, would take care of, of what um he had left her. So, he wasn't very responsible with money. But he did continue to work as a goldsmith, and he often made the lockets that went around the miniatures that he painted as well. And he was in high favor with James I as well as with Elizabeth, and in 1617 he received from James I a special patent granting him the sole license for royal portraits in engraved form for the next 12 years. And the esteem of his contemporaries for Hilliard is testified to by John Don, who in a poem called The Storm from 1597 praises the work of the artist, and I have a link to it up on the blog if you're curious. He died in 1619 and was buried in St. Martin's in the fields, and today the largest collection of his work is in the Victorian Albert Museum. And many of the miniatures are still in excellent shape because the miniatures were kept safe and were within jewelry often, so they were always well cared for through the years. So, if you're in London, go to the Victorian Albert and check it out. So, another painter, Nathaniel Bacon, was born in 1585. And though he wasn't as prolific as many of the other artists, since it wasn't his full-time job, He was actually a wealthy landowner and a member of the peerage. He is credited with several pioneering paintings, among them the first recorded painting of a British landscape, and his famous cookmaid with still life of vegetables and fruit in the Tate Britain. So that's pretty exciting too. So that's it for this week, and thanks for listening. Check out the blog, like I said, for images from the artists that I've been talking about today, as well as interesting links to stories about art in Renaissance England. The address is http colon www.englandcast.com. You can also connect with me in this podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash englandcast, and you can contact me and follow my ramblings on Twitter at Tesco. And email me with show ideas or questions or anything else, really. Thank you for your continued support, and I will chat with you next time. Thanks. Blow, northern wind, sand for may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich caught a board in Bower that solely Sam on sea